Well, good evening. It takes everything in me not to say good morning, because that's become my MO a bit, but we're glad you all are here with us, and Merry Christmas. Um, thank you for joining us for worship here this morning. See, I told you. We are truly glad you're all here, though. Um, I encourage you to open your Bibles um, to Matthew 1, where we just read from, as we're going to be talking about that text here just a bit in our time together this evening. And I want you to consider something, a question that I want you to think about here as we're preparing our hearts for Christmas tomorrow morning. What do you, what do you hope that tomorrow morning will feel like? What emotions, what, what thoughts, what feelings do you anticipate your time tomorrow will feel like? Do you want your morning tomorrow to feel like? There's a number of different things you may be having go through your head. Maybe some of you just desire to have a moment of peace so you can watch the football game on TV. As our culture demands four football games on Christmas Day, right? Maybe you're more lined with dinner together as a family and you have an idea of a serene, idyllic dinner where all of the kids finally pretend like they have manners and nobody fights at the dinner table. Maybe you find yourself wanting to have some sort of ecstatic joy at a gift you've either gotten ready to give to somebody or the gifts you may open up for yourself. Or maybe it's a bit more simple than that. Maybe you just are looking for this general elusive feeling of the Christmas spirit that we long for on Christmas morning. What do you want to feel? What do you want to see? Now, you may expect me to say that those things are wrong. I'm not going to say that any of those things are wrong. None of those things are not a part of Christmas. But I want you to consider whether the joys and momentary values of those things are really the point of Christmas tomorrow, are really what your heart longs for and desires at the Christmas season. The problem comes with those things when we look to those things to satisfy our desire for what Christmas means. And when we find other people and other things getting in the way, and as a result, they're ruining our Christmas, right? Instead, I think there's a greater desire, there's a greater purpose for Christmas. And you may be finding yourself saying, well, Brad, that's all well and good, but what is that supposed to be? Are we just supposed to embrace the sort of laissez-faire Christmas, the, if you will, quesera Christmas? Whatever will be, will be. I don't think so. I don't think that's what we're called to do at all. But I would argue to you that there is something we should look for in Christmas. There is something we should desire in Christmas. There is something we should long for tomorrow morning. And it's in that text we just read. Go back to Matthew chapter 1. Open your Bibles there. And I want to reread that text and see if you can't pick up on what it was that we are to desire. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, as he did the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife 
but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Did you pick up on what the goal, what the desire should be there? What was God's purpose in Christmas? Well, maybe you could say there's two goals, two desires that God has here. First, that he will save his people from their sins. That was the theme we really talked about in our time together this morning. But secondarily, in verse 23, this was that was spoken of the prophet Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. The reality of the Christmas season that we celebrate, this incredible divine purpose in Christmas, in sending Christ, that God would be with us. I would argue to you that while all of those other things we mentioned are good things and are enjoyable things on Christmas, the ultimate purpose of Christmas is that we would embrace what's described in Christ's name here, Emmanuel, God with us. I would argue that the greatest desire at Christmas should be a deep and abiding joy in our relationship with God. A joy that can be unaffected by all of the other circumstances and things, whether they go right or go wrong tomorrow morning. But I'm getting a bit of my head of myself, because if we're going to talk about God with us, if we're going to talk about the significance of this, we have to backtrack just a bit in our Bibles. We have to start a little bit earlier in the story and recognize that the reason we desire God with us is because God has implanted that desire in our hearts from the beginning. Do you recall in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, how God said, let us make man in our image to represent us, to reflect us, to image bear us here on earth. God built into the very fabric of our natures as people a hunger and a desire to be in relationship with him to reflect like a mirror God's glory. And a mirror loses any sort of sense of purpose if it's not reflecting something, doesn't it? Think about the value of a mirror in your home if there's nothing to reflect. <laughs> That's a scary prospect, isn't it? A mirror, by its very nature, is referential. It's valuable because of the thing that it reflects. And so in Genesis chapter 3, when our relationship with God was lost, humanity lost its moorings, we lost our meaning, we lost our sense of value because we were no longer reflecting that thing that we were created to do. And as a result of that, there's this intrinsic desire, this hunger that we run around in life looking to satisfy in any number of different ways. This pursuit of God, this hunger for God, this desire to be in relationship with Him, to have God with us. David articulates this so well in Psalm 63. You can turn there or you can just listen. In Psalm 63, David articulates the desire, the hunger of his heart for the presence of God. In Psalm 63, verses 1 through 8, David writes, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. 
when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David so well articulates this hunger, this desire for God to be with us that is intrinsic in the heart of every person that has ever lived. He describes God's presence as water to the thirsty soul, as food to the hungry heart, as love for the lonely person, as joy for the longing worshiper, and as help for the needy individual. The presence of God sustained him And that is the desire of all of our hearts, is it not? True, enduring satisfaction can only be found in the presence of God. It's not found in a Christmas that goes well. It's not found in the packages we open up. It's not found in the people we're even with. Our true desire at the season of Christmas is for the enduring, abiding presence of God. And it is that desire that Augustine captures so well when he says, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Does your heart feel restless in this season? Do you find yourself running around chasing after any number of different things, or abiding and resting in the presence of God here in this Christmas season? See, we have this innate desire, we have this innate hunger for God to be with us. In the same way that our physical bodies get tired and get hungry, right? You can only go so long without eating before your body pushes back. You can only go so long without drinking before your body will revolt. You can only sustain yourself with no sleep for so long with coffee before your body says enough. The same way it is with the abiding presence of God. We run around and we chase any number of different things looking to put salve on the wound to kind of stop the desire and the hunger when ultimately it will only be fulfilled in God's presence, in God with us. And while we try to satisfy these things in a hundred different ways, and they come out all over the place at the time of Christmas, do they not? Finding ourselves trying to satiate our hunger with family and friends, with parties and busyness, with good conversation and gifts and joys, and all of the amazing things that Christmas is for us. Some of us even try to satiate that hunger with religious ceremony and with service to other people. Seeking to stop the hunger, stop the desire, find something that will satisfy this desire for God with us. But you might be tempted to think that that's the story of Christmas. That just like your favorite romantic comedy or your favorite Hallmark card, the solution to this problem is that God comes in and answers that problem. And you're partially right, but the answer is a bit more complicated than that. Because the situation isn't so cookie-cutter, it's not so simple. As God loves everyone, we have this desire, it's a perfect match. The problem is what we'll call the danger of God with us. We each have this desire for God with us, but we also recognize there is a danger in God being with us. Because sin didn't simply separate us from God and our relationship with him. Because sin actually resulted in the need for judgment. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. The right judgment on all of our sin is death, is punishment. See, because An unholy people, a sinful people, cannot abide with God. 
because of the sin in our own hearts. Because God is holy, he is utterly unique, he is utterly distinct. It's almost as if, and don't, and don't take this too far, okay? It's almost as if God is allergic to sin, right? And in the Old Testament, we see again and again this reality that when sin gets too close to God, wrath breaks out. And now you have this imagery of like God sneezing, and that's, no, that's not what I'm talking about. But there's this reality of God's judgment on sin when sin and sinful people get too close to God. There's a great illustration in the book of Exodus of this fact. In the book of Exodus, where God rescues his people out of Egypt, they come to the climax of the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 20. The people have been rescued, they've been redeemed, they come out and they come to Mount Sinai and they long to know God, they long to be with God, and they come to the mountain and God's glory descends on the top of the mountain and Moses goes up to speak with God and do you know what the people do? Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. I love this phrase. I know I'm jumping all over the place in you here, but bear with me. In Exodus 20, there's this incredible illustration. This longing of Israel to know their God that has been projected over the course of these pages. He tells them to prepare themselves in Exodus chapter 19. Consecrate yourselves for the Lord is coming. You're going to get to meet him. And then in Exodus 20, after delivering the Ten Commandments, this is what the people say. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak, or, or you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. This climactic moment in the book of Exodus, they're finally going to meet with the God who saved them. And they go, no, we can't go up there. That's too scary. God is too great. God is too holy. We would be wiped out in an instant. That's the danger of God with us. Because the sinful people cannot abide with a holy and righteous God without being obliterated. This is the danger of God with us. There's this desire in the human heart for God with us, but there's this danger that if we come too close to a holy God because of our sinful state, we'll be killed. So what are we to do? You see how this story is getting complicated? The deepest longing of our heart is to know God and to be with God, but we can't. We're stuck between a rock and a hard place, are we not? We're stuck desiring the very thing that we can't have. What are we to do? It is in addressing that question that Matthew's gospel breaks the silence of 400 years. God, having gone silent to his people for 400 years, Matthew steps in and breaks the silence, and the prophet Isaiah's words echo down the halls of history. And he says these words in Matthew chapter 1. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The desire of every human heart to be with God, but the danger of every human heart knowing that we can't be with God or we will be destroyed comes to the conclusion of the story in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ comes to allow for us to delight in God with us. Christ comes to satisfy the wrath of God, to save us from our sins, to rescue us back, to say, this danger can be placated. 
And Christ comes as Emmanuel here to satisfy our desire for God with us. He comes in human flesh as God, fully divine, and yet walking the earth to be among his people. This is the incredible reality we celebrate at Christmas. Who is up to these tasks? Who is up to these things? We desire for God to be with us, but we recognize that there is this danger and we can only delight fully in God when we go through Christ. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why this season has significance. That's why this season has meaning to us. So regardless, when you get up tomorrow morning, if the game goes according to plan or if you even get to watch it, and regardless of whether or not dinner goes according to plan or if it gets burnt in the oven, and regardless of whether or not anybody likes the gifts you gave them or you like any of the gifts somebody else gave you, and regardless of whether or not you feel the quote-unquote Christmas spirit, The true purpose of Christmas is to recognize that we get to delight in abiding with God because the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that is something that can sustain us and give us joy even in the hardest seasons at Christmas time. And that is what we want to continue to foster and celebrate in our time together this morning. So we're going to continue to read through these texts. We're going to continue to talk about what God has done for us in our time together. I did it again. I said this morning, didn't I? Linda's over here laughing at me. That's what we're going to seek to do in the rest of our time together this evening, to prepare your heart to celebrate the fact that you get to know God because of what Christ did for us. Amen? All right.